All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one uh, and uh, share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, my guest is David Byler, who is on Twitter at Data Byler. You can uh, pet, follow him if you are interested in analysis of elections from a balanced perspective. He is an uh, analyst for The Washington Post and someone who pays a lot of attention to crunching the data on polls and on the election outcomes that uh, we've had thus far in the primary season in 2022. David Byler gives us his perspective on what's going on when it comes to the different endorsements at play uh, and the potential outcomes for a Republican Senate uh, if November goes the way the GOP would like it to. David Byler, coming up next. David Byler, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Uh, I wanted to uh, talk to you about the state of a lot of different things that are happening in the political world. Uh, Tell me, what do you think is the major dynamic that you're paying attention to as it relates to November's midterms? There's a couple things I'm paying attention to. One is the typical midterm drift. So what we know from history is that in most midterm elections, in this sort of stretch run period between Labor Day and Election Day, the party that does not hold the presidency, which is the Republicans, usually gains ground. So one thing I'm looking for is How fast are they gaining ground and sort of what issues are they gaining ground on? We've noticed that uh, since the Dobbs ruling, which overturned Roe v. Wade, Democrats have gained some ground. That also coincides with uh, some gas prices that are going down. But we also know that Biden's approval rating is still pretty low. And typically what ends up happening is sort of in this September, October stretch run, you get people remembering why they dislike the president in the first place and you get those numbers going down. So I'm watching that trend to see how strong it is and where it is. And I'm also watching out for non-response bias. So that is the exceedingly nerdy term uh, for what happened to the polls in the year 2020, which is essentially a segment of Trump voters uh, did not pick up the phone at all, did not talk to any pollsters whatsoever. The Republicans that were picked up by the polls were more likely to be, you know, college educated Republicans who say, hey, I'm a Republican, but I voted for Biden, so on, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to be looking for sort of patterns in the polling to kind of try to, you know, keep an open mind about where that polling error might go and see if it's going to favor the Republicans or do something else entirely. So uh, let's run through kind of the the situation as it relates to the Senate, because I know that that's something that a lot of people are focused on. You know, obviously, we had this uh, period of Senate primaries that, uh, you know, the president, the former president played a, a major role in, in terms of determining the uh, the choice for the candidate who would win the nomination. Uh, and so you ended up with, uh, you know, a lot of different candidates who Washington Republicans, typical D.C. Republicans, uh, did not Uh, really necessarily approve of. But there are also candidates who have, you know, that outsider status, that, you know, ability to appeal to a lot of people who dislike what's going on in Washington, uh, you know, that is about them. When you look at sort of the situation with these outsider candidates who've never held office, who do you believe at this moment is in an advantageous position versus someone who maybe has a, a tougher road ahead of them? And it's J.D. Vance is the one that clearly has the highest upside of 
any of them. So Ohio, ever since sort of Trump won the Republican nomination, Ohio shifted from being the swing state to being this, you know, light red to really maybe even solidly red state. Um, and with some of these other candidates, you have credible knocks that are, you know, different from inexperience, right? So with Dr. Oz, it's not just that he's never held political office before. People are trying to say, oh, he's from New Jersey, he's an outsider, et cetera. Uh, with Vance, he has, in a lot of ways, a pretty solid uh, sort of resume that you'd want from a candidate, right? He's a veteran, um, you know, he has sort of the establishment credentials if you're talking about uh, sort of running in, you know, high-powered elite circles. Um, he's a person that I think has a lot of potential to sort of gain in the final round uh, or in sort of these last two months just because of the nature of the state and the nature of who he is uh, as a candidate. I do think it's interesting that of sort of these outsider candidates, you're starting to see some uh, solid numbers out for Herschel Walker. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Georgia is one of the few states where polling did uh, pretty well in 2020. And it's one mm -hmm. of the states where uh, the Republican is sort of, you know, sort of coming into more of a neck and neck race. Um, so I think that's there. And I, I think another sort of wrinkle that's interesting here in these uh, races is that there, there are some cases where Trump has backed an inexperienced candidate. And, you know, you can make the argument that somebody who has more traditional qualifications would be doing better. Uh, you know, the poster boy for that is Dr. Oz. But there are also situations in which Trump backed someone who was both aligned with him ideologically and traditional, uh, traditionally qualified. So I'm thinking of um, Ted Budd, the House member in North Carolina, who's currently in a, a tight race with the Democrat, Sherry Beasley. And I'm thinking of uh, Adam Laxalt, who is sort of from, uh, you know, storied uh, political family in Nevada, but also has sort of the Trump credentials on his resume. So it's, it's an interesting mix, and I think it really varies from state to state. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about the uh, degree to which you know, as an analyst, you look at these different races and you look at them over time. You look at uh, the way they play out over multiple cycles. And, you know, it, one of the things that I've heard many people say is that in the case of Pennsylvania and in the case of Arizona, the gubernatorial nominees are going to drag down the Republican nominee for Senate. I don't know about the historical pattern of that. How much does that really matter how much does it actually happen? It makes sense in sort of a, you know, uh, you know, uh, all things being equal, you know, but I'm not sure that it actually plays out in, in terms of the historical dynamics in play. Uh, what, what does that actually look like to you? Um, sanity check you can do with kind of this data, uh, sort of this thing where you can sort of do some quick stats to make sure that, you know, what you're thinking of is actually aligning with the numbers. You, you can see if you line up, Senate vote with presidential vote, that correlation has been getting tighter and tighter and tighter over time. People identify Senate races with national politics. They think about, do I like Biden? Do I like Trump? Do I like what the Democrats are doing in Congress? Or, you know, four years ago, do I like what the Republicans are doing in Congress? And that is a lot of what happens in the vote. That force mm -hmm. is a lot weaker in governor races. So in a governor race, people will evaluate the candidates themselves more individually. 
they'll say, oh, you know, I don't like Mastriano or I, you know, do like Kerry Laker or whatever they might be thinking. Uh, that sort of has less nationalization to it. And you can see the proof of that all over the country, right? Everyone thinks that, uh, you know, or ever, it's true that Vermont is a very blue state and Maryland is a very blue state. Both of them currently have Republican governors, right? You have these sort of mismatches there because people are willing to evaluate things on more of a state-by-state -state, uh, basis. So I... I know just... Yeah. Just speaking yeah. as a Virginian, I know plenty of Virginians who are solid Republicans who are perfectly happy with the governorships of Mark Warner and Tim Kaine. So, yes. <laughs> and even as Virginia has shifted left on the presidential level, you saw just last year Glenn Youngkin uh, have his win there. So in terms of the governor races, you know, you, ideally you always want to put your strongest candidate possible forward in a marginal state like, you know, Arizona. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. you can get into arguments about who's the better candidate, what should have happened in the primary, and so on and so forth. You, you can go through all that. But if I'm thinking through what matters in a Senate race, I'm thinking through the national conditions a lot, lot, lot more than sort of mm -hmm. other state races. So, uh, you know, one of the big things that uh, is a dynamic this time around is the dispute, I would get, uh, I guess you can call it, between uh, the Mitch McConnell way of doing things uh, and the way that Rick Scott has approached uh, his management of the NRSC. Um, you know, his NRSC has basically not played in any of these primaries. They haven't really picked sides. Uh, the, to, to the degree that he did, it was just along with every other Republican not wanting Eric Greitens to be the nominee in Missouri, which obviously, you know, worked out for them. But it was one of these situations where, you know, even with uh, you know, sort of the Trump factor, but and other people, you know, playing within these nomination battles, the NRSC really didn't uh, choose a side. Uh, now you've seen in recent weeks uh, the uh, criticism that Mitch McConnell has laid against these candidates, you know, said a lot of them weren't ready for prime time, you know, weren't ready for the uh, situation that they were, uh, they were put upon. And he's, he's announced, uh, you know, a couple of different things via his uh, political arm, uh, namely that he's playing in Ohio, but not playing in Arizona. To what degree does uh, McConnell sort of factor within the Senate dynamic? And uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, the way that people have kind of adjusted the way that they relate to him, uh, given that the pre the former president is so uh, you know opposed to him, and that they are, they are basically engaged in open warfare when it comes to social media. Dynamic is is kind of wild. I mean, it's it's definitely a disadvantage for someone like Blake Masters to have you know not as much money. Um, and it, usually the dynamic with money is that once you pass a certain threshold, the extra dollars don't really help that much, right? So I'm thinking back to when sort of the Act Blue Democratic small do dollar donor machine uh, really started to rev up, right? In 2018 with your Beto O'Rourke's and your Stacey Abrams, and then in 2020 again with your uh, Barbara Bollier's and your Al Gross and your... You're, you have all these candidates where once you hit a certain amount of funds, you can do what you need to do, but the money on top of that doesn't make as much of a, a difference. So I think it's, it's hard to peg the exact dollar amount someone needs, and it's going to be a different number in different states. 
Uh, but I think what I'm watching for in terms of the money spent is, okay, you're probably not going to have the Republicans, you know, match Democratic small dollar donors in every single state. I don't necessarily think that they need to. So that's sort of what I'm watching is, do you hit a threshold where you can run a reasonable campaign or not? The broader dynamic that you're talking about with McConnell and Trump, I think, is is one of the most interesting parts of this whole election cycle. Because in 2016, when Trump sort of entered the Republican uh, fray, he didn't have these down-ballot candidates that said, oh, I'm the Trump candidate. Everyone was just sort of figuring out what the hell was going on, right? Um, and in 2018 and 2020, Trump was in charge of the party. So there wasn't that much infighting in these primaries. It wasn't, I'm the Trump candidate. No, I'm the Trump candidate. It was, you know, Trump's in charge. Everyone knows uh, in the Republican Party what that sort of pyramid of authority looks like. And right now, six years after the fact is when you are finally getting sort of a, a fight between sort of the establishment wing, you might call it, and the Trump wing, you might call it. And, you know, honestly, I, I crunched numbers uh, a few, I think a few weeks ago, Trump had a 94% win rate in primaries where he endorsed, I think he's up to 95% now. Um, so in my mind, it's, it's fairly clear who's winning this. And yeah, it is, it is possible that when we get through election day, we will see that a couple, you know, Senate races uh, were tanked for Republicans by bad candidates. And it's possible the same is true in governor races. Um, but, you know, this is this is the party sorting itself out, uh, kind of extending mm -hmm. that fight that it started six years ago into now, which is just kind of a wild phenomenon. Well, I mean, one thing that I would say for Trump, and I, I don't mean to sort of defend his political acumen, but I think that there are, you know, there's always that kind of uh, imaginary fiction that D.C. Republicans create where their ideal candidate would have been perfect. You know, you look at a situation like, you know, say Oz versus McCormick. It's like, you know, who's to say that McCormick, who has never won anything, you know, would be a much better candidate than Oz? You know, I'm not sure that he would be. You know, uh, the flip side of that is when you see somebody like Mastriano, who I think it was Josh Krauschauer or somebody else pointed out recently, like has spent zero dollars, zero on TV, you know, since the primary ended. Like you can look at that and say, that's probably not great. You know, that's, uh, that's probably not a great choice. So I, I, I look at these people and basically say, you know, look, on the one hand, yes, Trump is choosing outsiders, He's he, uh, you know, and and his voters are backing outsiders. And maybe that's a defect. But it's not necessarily the same thing as the Christine O'Donnell kind of wave. You know, we forget, for instance, that like Todd Aiken was a member of Congress for many years. You know, it was not like he was some, you know, inexperienced person when Tea Partiers elevated him. And so one of the things that I think is is an interesting dynamic about this is like, okay, Trump's made these choices. He's, you know, chosen a lot of outsiders. Are they really all that worse than what the party itself might have chosen in his absence? That's a good question. And I think it's it's I've got this kind of distribution in my mind of the candidates. There are some of them that Trump backed that would be the candidates in a universe where he stayed the real estate developer and something else happened entirely, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's someone like Adam Laxalt would have been a Senate candidate no matter totally. what, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's some, uh, like we were talking about J.D. Vance a minute ago, right? He's someone who I think 
would have, uh, you know, he, he has the inexperience knock against him and clearly he has sort of his path coming up through Trump world, Trump's endorsement, I think arguably sealed the primary up for him. He's somebody who, you know, is plausible biographically, but he he's path dependent. He happened because Trump endorsed him. Right. And yeah. he's someone who I think, you know, is, is probably going to win anyways. But I, I, I do think there is a reasonable knock against Trump. I mean, Oz, Dr. Oz might win, but Trump, you know, clear, he, he endorsed him fairly early in a competitive primary. Someone like Herschel Walker is in a tight race, but Trump cleared that field very early for him. He explicitly rolled the dice on some of these other candidates who, you know, and if you look at it empirically, just empirically speaking, inexperienced candidates, when you control for other variables and do the statistics, inexperienced candidates as a generality don't do quite as well. Ideologically yeah. extreme candidates don't do quite as well. So I, I think there's a reasonable case to be made that, you know, Trump did hurt Republican chances in some races, but I, I kind of have it in those three bins. People who would have won, people who needed Trump but look, you know, like fairly normal Republicans, and people who probably underperform a generic Republican. And I think there's candidates in all three of those, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does make sense. So let's assume for the sake of argument, I'm going to run through. I know that you do this analysis work for a business, so I'm not going to ask you to pr predict because I know that that's uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, not kosher. So I'm going to go ahead and predict. Let's assume for the sake of argument that Herschel pulls it out. You know, it's a it's a plus four plus five, you know, red, you know, state. Let's say he wins. Let's say J.D. wins. Let's say Laxalt wins. Let's say Masters loses and Oz loses. And you end up with a Senate that has the addition of Vance, the addition of, of Herschel, the addition of Laxalt. And then it becomes kind of a coin flip question in a, in a, in a state like uh, New Hampshire, for instance. Um, you also have, of course, uh, Mark Wayne Mullen coming out of, of Oklahoma. You have, you know, sort of, uh, uh, I, I'm forgetting her name, but the, the Shelby replacement, the former Shelby uh, chief of staff in, uh, in Alabama, you have sort of a new demographic of Republicans within the conference, regardless of whether they, you know, and, and then, it, of course, it's like a one-seat question of whether uh, uh, McConnell gets his majority or not. But regardless of whether they pick up the majority or not, given that this is a much younger group of people who aren't dedicated to D.C. Republicanism, how likely is it that they band together with the half dozen, dozen or so McConnell critics within the conference in the Senate? to actually make a difference there or potentially replace him as leader? Good question. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure where you're going with that one. Uh, couple dynamics play here. I don't want to be macabre, but like, Donald's not a young guy, right? No. Eventually, like if we're thinking about the, the leadership of both parties. If you Everyone gets replaced eventually. Like it happens, you know? <laughs> right. McConnell's not young. Pelosi's not young. Trump's not young. Biden's not young. Like there's going to be some sort of generational turnover at some point. Um, I think I, I wouldn't underestimate McConnell's adaptability. 
um, because if there's one thing he's done over the course of his entire career, it's survive uh, and it's a survive, you know, in a state that has politically transformed massively over the time that he's been in the Senate. Um, I think that if he and Trump, I, I think he knows sort of where the winds are blowing. Um, one interesting poll number to sort of throw into the mix here is Republican satisfaction with their own party. Civics, uh, which is a polling firm, has been tracking this since 2016. And what you found is that in sort of mid-2016, Republicans were sort of half and half meh on their own party. And there are ups and downs, you know, there are ups and downs on how favorably they do this. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's like 70% now. Trump's changes to the party, whatever you think of them in terms of normative or ethic or political or, or whatever, you know, qualms might be there, Republicans mm -hmm. as a population like the Trump version of the party more than the pre-Trump version of the party. So my guess is, is that McConnell, you know, if, if it comes to the point where Trump is in charge again, suppose he runs in 2024, wins the nomination and or the presidency, my guess is, is that McConnell becomes more loyal again, because when Trump is either the nominee or the president, he has more power than he does now. That That's my mm -hmm. guess of gaming it out. But I mean, you know, God knows what goes on in the minds of elected officials. Um, I, it's sometimes yeah. through to me. Yeah. It does seem to me like if Rick Scott had a bigger mm -hmm. success rate this time around, uh, that he might have a shot at, at uh, taking him on. But we'll see. Um, you bring up my next question, which is, you know, what can we take away from the performance of these candidates uh, that will inform our anticipation of what could happen in 2024? You know, how much does Trump's kind of success rate in terms of endorsing outsiders and then getting them then getting them elected, meaning that like someone like Laxalt doesn't really make a difference. Like it's not really a, a, a bonus to him if someone like Laxalt wins. But someone like Masters, it's like this guy wouldn't even be a person if it wasn't for Trump's endorsement and Teal's, you know, money. So like how much does this uh, flow into uh, a an understanding of how powerful he is politically in the country? So it's it's an interesting thing. With Trump's win rate, he has some very big wins, like we're talking about Masters, we're talking about Walker. There's some where he kind of jumped on the bandwagon late, right? Like Mastriano sewed up his entire win. And then like three days before the primary, Trump was like, that's my guy. Uh, so, you know, in, in some cases, in some cases, Trump even jumped onto the bandwagon of uncontested uh, races. There was, you know, House members who were running with no opponent. Trump says two, two days before the election, that's my guy. And so it, it, the 95% is a little bit inflated. Uh, but I, what I would say is that the closest sort of historical comparison, and it's not a perfect comparison. I think Trump's probably a little bit stronger than this. I think the closest historical comparison is Hillary Clinton in 2016, in the sense that she started out the voters knew her on the Democratic side. The voters, you know, knew the baggage. They knew the pros. They knew the cons. They were generally on board. Um, you had the ability of a challenger to come in. But by the end of the primary, it was, you know, 60% Clinton, 40% Sanders. And that's with Sanders having huge amounts of donation. That's with him having huge amounts of media attention. I think Trump is in this position where he's in charge of the party. 
the Republican voters like him. Republican voters would like him to be president again. They're open to other ideas. Uh, they're open to other people. Uh, it's not a situation like Trump 2020, where the entire party said, no, he's our guy. We're not open to anybody else. Nobody else even run. Right. Um, but I, th I think that what we're learning here is that the base still listens to Trump. Um, and essentially Trump is in a strong position, but you know, it might, might not be quite as strong as it was 12, 15 months ago, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Let's talk for a moment uh, about the House. Obviously, Republicans are favored to win it. They need to pick up only a handful of seats in order to do so. That would elevate Kevin McCarthy potentially to being the new speaker. The House has been in the hands of some octogenarian or septuagenarian leadership for quite a long time. Uh, and whether you like Nancy Pelosi or not, I happen to be in the not factor. Um, I would I would say that there is an appetite for change, an appetite for generational change. Talk to me a little bit about the generational change that we're going to see in terms of, you know, McCarthy presumably taking over, but also presumably on the Democratic side, you know, some of these kind of Gen X era, you know, people finally getting an opportunity in a Congress that will no longer be beholden to a bunch of baby boomers. Interesting. I feel like one of the under you're, you're hitting on one of the underplayed stories about Congress right now, which is that what's happening on both sides is a little bit of an adapt or retire dynamic. Right. Mm -hmm. So on the right, what you're seeing, you know, the, the primary challenges like Liz Cheney losing and that sort of, you know, her her being out of leadership when she's out of the uh, out of leadership. And, you know, you, you have these high profile primary challenges like that happening. But the real sort of change in ideology when it comes to the House is from two sources. It's from people retiring and then somebody who is more in line with, you know, the current party's thinking replaces them. Or it's people who just, you know, see where the party is going and they shift. Uh, the person that I think about the most uh, in that second bucket or the two people I think about the most. One is Marco Rubio, who is Trump's arguably strongest opponent in 2016. And has become, you know, a strong backer of, you know, Trumpism as sort of an ideology. Another one I think about is Joe Biden. If you look at measures of like ideology that try to put people sort of on a scale, Joe Biden for his <laughs> entire career, decade after decade, has been the median Senate Democrat. Every single time. Totally. In, in fact, I think he might be the perfect median Senate Democrat if you look back at the at the voting analysis. But continue. Tracks <laughs> the trend when the party moves, he goes with it. Like he is he is exactly there, right? And so I I do think what you're going to see on the Republican side uh, with McCarthy and with sort of the turnover and the turn is both people who are more interested in sort of uh, Trump brand of politics, which is you know, a little bit more flexible on conservative economics, uh, more restrictionist on immigration, uh, potentially more hawkish on China. You're going to see, I think, people trying to figure out uh, and flesh out a little bit more of Trumpism itself, because I, th I think it's fair to say after watching Trump in the presidency for four years, he operates on instinct a lot. Uh, and other people kind of come in behind and sometimes try to fill out the policy based on that. And I think on the Democratic side, you're going to see uh, sort of this widening rift. Uh, the number of 
sort of white college educated Democrats who are progressive, the number of non-religious Democrats is increasing. Uh, that is creating a new wing in the Democratic Party that is, you know, just ideologically different than what we've seen generations ago. At the same time, you do have some of those Democrats who are there, you know, sort of for uh, fiscal reasons. You have Democrats that are there who are, you know, moderate African-American, moderate Latino Democrats. And I think those tensions are just going to increase as you have these leadership fights. You anticipated my last question. So, David, the most interesting dynamic to me that's played out in the last couple of years in terms of the way that the parties are positioning themselves and the demographics that they appeal to is Republicans essentially losing the suburban, white, college-educated woman who was a Mitt Romney voter very happily in 2012 and replacing them with the middle-class, working Hispanic voter uh, who is usually second generation immigrant or you know a couple a couple generations down uh, and uh, and has you know a very different value set when it comes to both being sort of more socially conservative but economically more moderate in a lot of different ways it, it it's obviously something that is creating upheaval within the way that a lot of people are analyzing the uh, you know traditional understood expectations of the party uh, backing uh, populations what is this going to do both to the republican party and the democratic party assuming that that plays out again in these uh, midterm elections uh that's a great question so I, I i kind of you know we can take it side by side and uh party by party right so mm-hmm. on the republican side like you said there's a republican increase in uh sort of the working class latino vote. what you're seeing is some of the determinants of the vote that sort of work and push white voters you know back and forth between the sides are gaining sort of a statistical strength with latino voters now in in english and not in stats what that essentially means is you're seeing things like more religious latino voters like you were saying latino voters who are a few generations uh, removed from the initial immigration uh latino voters who uh, identify themselves as more conservative ideologically are sort of moving into the republican party as sort of a natural home i think you are going to see uh honestly a media that a little bit more struggles to understand a coalition that is not really reflected in the media itself, right? As the Republican Party becomes more working I mean, class. I mean, not to interrupt you, but but yeah. how many like working class Hispanic Republicans are in media? <laughs> like none. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on on religion, on ideology, on a lot of these different vectors, uh, I think you're gonna have you're, you're like media people are going to and i I think that includes everyone uh who is you know in the professional national media is going to have to adapt to a republican party that talks looks and thinks differently than it did 10 years ago when mitt romney was the standard bearer um i think that yeah like i was saying earlier i really think the experimentation piece is key because if donald trump you know runs and wins people are going to have to fill out the specifics of the policy agenda and if he does not run or does not win, 
other people are going to look at his popularity and still have to fill out the specifics, right? So I think you're going to see a lot of different people trying different things. Um, on the left, I think you're going to see uh, the sort of strident progressive wing gain strength. I think Kristen, or Kristen Cinema is also an interesting figure in this situation because you you named the Romney converts, right? So these people are, you know, more comfortable with sort of left-ish social issue positions, but not all of them have sort of abandoned uh, sort of traditional economic conservative positions as well. Mm -hmm. So I think as Democrats take over the suburbs, I think it's possible that a new sort of moderate wing also emerges that it's not just the left, but it's also the the yeah. Democrats having to think, okay, we have this new left wing, we have, you know, traditional African American and Latino moderates, and we also have, you know, socially liberal people who are more fiscally conservative than we have. So or that than we've been in the past. So you have Democrats sort of thinking through those uh pieces and yeah, I I can't see anything other than uh, tension on on both sides as everyone sort of <laughs> solves the riddle of a it's it's like everyone's catching up to the realignment that's happening in real time, right? Everyone's trying totally. to figure out what it means, and it's just people figuring out which competing vision is going to win. You end up with more Myra Floreses and more Christian cinemas. It's going to be a pretty crazy uh, DC, that's for sure. <laughs> David Byler, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I do have uh, one perspective on something that's going on in 2022 that I think is going to be an interesting dynamic to follow going forward, which is this. If Ron DeSantis, the likeliest person to have any shot of taking the 2024 nomination away from former President Donald Trump, chooses not to run, the simple fact is that there might be someone else to emerge from the 2022 cycle who could potentially challenge the former president. Now, this may seem ridiculous, but, uh, you know, on its face, you know, obviously the idea of challenging the former president, someone who has such a huge level of support from Republicans, uh, is something that would be very challenging and very difficult to achieve. But it's happened before, obviously. You know, it was Barack Obama who understood the moment that he inhabited uh, in terms of going very early to challenge Hillary Clinton for the 2008 nomination. It was Chris Christie in 2012 who missed his moment. Uh, and regardless of the fact that he only had two years under his belt as governor of New Jersey, uh, was someone who, you know, could potentially have uh, challenged Mitt Romney and maybe even won the presidency. There are a lot of people who miss their moments, who miss the chance that they have to take on uh, the big dog within their party at the moment uh, and to make a difference. Ron DeSantis may run the risk of doing exactly that. And if he does, I think the possibility that one of these 2022 victors could potentially go in a different direction, throw havoc uh, to the wind and basically say, you know, I'm going to take on this former president, uh, you know, perhaps uh, just by dint of uh, wanting to raise my own profile, wanting to have my own voice heard. That's something that I think is not outside the realm of possibility. Members of Congress or the Senate, potentially even new governors, could honestly take on the president and basically make an argument that goes something like this. When it came to the pandemic, when it came to your uh, confrontational 
attitude toward Anthony Fauci or Deborah Burks or the healthcare establishment, you really failed us, Mr. President. You didn't actually deliver on your promise uh, to take on the deep state when it came to challenging people over the issue of COVID. And someone like me would, or in the case of some governors, had. This is something that I think is, is not outside the realm of possibility, and in fact, likely would happen if the situation is such that the former president is uh, only going to be confronting people who actually worked for him, the likes of Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, even Nikki Haley, then I think that that runs the risk of being something that is essentially an insider's game, even though it may not seem so on its face. Someone is going to emerge who tries to make the argument that they are an outsider, someone untainted by the past several years of decisions in Washington, and that includes the Trump era. It'll be interesting to see who that person is. There's always one or two surprises when it comes to who decides to run for president, who believes that they can actually have a chance, a path toward victory. And there's going to be someone who does it, even if that's not Ron DeSantis. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We will be back soon with more to dive back into the fray.